You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, welcome back. So picture this. You're in your radio car. Dispatcher sends you on your way to several calls from individuals who talk about an adult male running around a downtown parking lot where several tents have been set up by people uh, with nowhere else to go. Some callers have said that this guy is highly agitated, screaming and running after others. At least one caller says that the man has been seen with a metal object in his hand that he's been threatening others with. Think about that for a second. Are you prepared for what comes next? Does your department policy give you enough protection to handle this situation and maybe use force if necessary? Well, I hope you've seen the HBO documentary. It's called Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. Uh, They follow two San Antonio Police Department officers as they respond to calls for service involving individuals in crisis. Well, today we have Ernie Stevens, who served as a police officer for over 28 years, recently retired from the San Antonio Police Department, where he served for 25 and a half years. He was a founding member of the San Antonio Police Department Mental Health Unit, holds a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, and he appears in the Emmy Award-winning HBO documentary, Ernie and Joe, Crisis Cops. He currently speaks to other police departments across the country, and he's a law enforcement trainer for the Naval Security Forces. Also with us is his partner, Joe Smarrow. Joe is a decorated combat veteran in the United States Marine Corps. He honorably served two tours of Af- in Afghanistan and Iraq with the 1st Battalion, 4th Marines. In 2005, he joined the San Antonio Police Department, where he became one of the original members of the mental health unit, which Joe helped to grow into a nationally recognized best practices policing unit. In addition to being one of the main subjects in the documentary, he's also the founder and CEO of Solution Point, a national training and consulting firm that focuses on cultivating mental wellness to maximize human capital and promote safety within organizations. Wow, that's, a, that's an introduction. Welcome to Policing Matters, Ernie and Joe. Thank you, Jim. Good to be here. Thank you, Jim. Uh, great having you both. I watched uh, the documentary. I thought it was outstanding. Um, I'm sure it will resonate with our police officers and law enforcement people in the audience um, really comes across as a, a true portrayal. I, I hope non-cops are watching it to get a good glimpse to see behind the scenes um, what cops are talking about before they get to these situations, uh, how they deal with it, how they handle their own stress on and off the job. And you guys are real. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great portrayal. So how did you get there? How did you, were you approached or did you say, Hey, we really got something going here. Let's, let's share it. How'd you do that? Jim, it was, it's a 17 year process. It seems like it happened overnight though. You know, we started the mental health unit back in 2008 in December and, you know, little by little, we got a little bit of local press. Uh, we were, a, you know, a large municipality now, police department that had a specialized unit that would, re- that would respond to mental health calls. And, you know, that those stories get out, of course. And then we had a writer by the name of Ann Snyder from The Atlantic come down and do an article on us. And she named it uh, Policing with Velvet Gloves, which I thought was a pretty catchy title. And a friend of hers, uh, Jen McShane, who is the director of the film, uh, had contact with her after they saw the um, 
the airing of Nightline with Byron Pitts came down and did a ride with us. And that story aired three times nationally. So Jen reached out to Ann and said, hey, what's going on with those two, with those two dummies down in San Antonio? It seems like they're on to something. And, um, you know, it was just something different from what up north, the uh, East Coast and really traditional policing was doing at the time. And that's how uh, Jen got a hold of us and came down and started to uh, uh, get to know us and find out what we were about. Well, I'm glad I'm glad they did. Joe, same experience. You, ju you just got the same phone call, huh? Yeah, I mean, she actually showed up in person, uh, Jen showed up to the police department. Uh, you know, she called and said she was going to come out and meet with us. And so we, I think we met her for lunch, hung out. We were talking a little while. Um, she's a native New Yorker. And so as a proud Yankee myself, I said, she's got to be good people. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just, it was one of those things where she came down to feel us out, kind of um, observe a little bit of what we were doing. And then she left convinced that uh, she had enough for uh, for a story. And what a lot of people don't realize is that that began a uh, three-year journey of recording. So that documentary that you've seen was uh, just about three years of filming and around 300 hours of content, all to be narrowed down to 96 minutes. So it's a pretty impressive uh, thing that she was able to do with her team. Yeah. I, I Gosh, I would pay to see the outtakes uh, from that. <laughs> and, you know, you guys both have the gift of gab, you're technicians for sure. Uh, you know the technical aspects of mental illness, um, but you're Ernie and Joe, right? I see you, I, I could see having a, a beer with you at a bar, or chatting it up at a ball game, or just hanging out, talking over the fence with a neighbor. Uh, it seems so natural for you two. And, and is it the fit because of who you are or can your style be taught to other officers? Well, you know, me and Joe clicked right away just as friends, uh, naturally. And, you know, that that helps when you're you know, on the same page as being friends and, and receiving the same type of training and having the same vision. Right. The, the vision was, you know, it's not the arrest that we're looking for anymore. It's really the connection with another human being to find out how if we can be of service to them and, you know, educating ourselves as to what resources were available in the community. Uh, to be able to make that difference and not just show up and, and hand out a number and say, you know, call, call this number, they might be able to help you. We really wanted to get involved and, you know, provide the type of assistance where, number one, they wouldn't be afraid to call the police if they needed help. And two, maybe open up their eyes to resources that were available to them that they never knew about. And I think that helped, you know, it, because Joe and I come from completely different backgrounds. If you saw the documentary, his upbringing was completely different from mine. He served in the Marines. I was in the Cub Scouts. I mean, kind of the same there, maybe, maybe not. But it was, I think, our friendship um, and our willingness to share the same vision of, of really trying to make a difference in the community. And, and Jim, specifically, the answer is yes, because if not, then I wouldn't be in business, right? So um, my entire livelihood now is based on that idea of this is absolutely something that can be taught. Um, what we know is that these skills, um, while it might come easier for some people, uh, it absolutely is a skill that can be taught if you want to do it. It's like anything else, you know, you just have to learn, um, you know, a simple framework and then realize that, oh, it does work. 
but you know, a lot of, for a lot of first responders, there's, uh, there's a level of discomfort that comes along with doing something like this because it almost requires a certain level of vulnerability. I mean, if you're really going to be effective doing this job in this manner, you almost have to be willing to give of yourself. And if you're closed off and you see the people in the community as less than you, beneath you, different than you, potentially dangerous, anything other than just a, a fellow human being, you're going to have a problem. And so we really work on trying to normalize all just human behavior and understanding what it means fundamentally. Uh, but then also like reminding these officers of why they got into this work in the first place, um, noticing the disconnect between where they are today and where they were when they first joined, because almost every single one of them has had a pretty steep decline, whether it's in morale, it's in ideas, it's in beliefs, it's in whatever it is, a lot of first responders, and I've been fortunate to meet them all over the country, they're no longer the same person as they were when they joined. For some, it's better, but there's always like a little bit of things got worse, or there's a little bit of negativity within them because our views of the world, our views of people change and we become um, maybe a little idealistic and, and we, we have certain expectations that people should do certain things a certain way. Uh, and then the system kind of lets us down time and time again. And so we become frustrated and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge. But yes, absolutely. These are all skills that can be taught. And that's what I'm very blessed to do full time now. That's great. Yeah. And, and I can tell, I mean, it was one of the things that I focused on that you, although you both can talk it up, you have different styles. And it seemed to me that Ernie was more willing to, to start talking um, right away where it was kind of funny. Joe seemed to take a step back and to be very measured uh, with what he said and then I noticed in the instruction with um, there's a segment where you talk to a room full of cops and uh, you're actually giving them like uh, staging instructions, like lean against the wall or sit down at their level uh, and you make the person comfortable. Is that all part of the training that you do? It is. You know, we, we do talk about body language, of course, you know, at least 90 plus percent of just the way to communicate is based on somebody's body language, whether it's their micro expressions, you know, their, their position of their hands, their feet, uh, anything and everything really is part of communication. You know, even the way we dress when we show up on a call communicates who we are. And, you know, we wear plain clothes on the mental health unit. And, you know, we've noticed that that lowers the anxiety and the expectations of what somebody thinks they're about to experience when the police are arriving. However, Going back to the training, this training can still be done correctly while in uniform, because in the documentary, you see us working an overtime shift in uniform when we're speaking to uh, Kendra, who is contemplating jumping off a bridge. But you could tell there was a barrier there because it's right away. You cops never help. You cops um, just waste my time, basically. And that's what she saw was the uniform. So there's so much that goes in to the CIT training and not every police department um, allows the affordability to wear plain clothes, which to us is a huge de-escalator. Um, but it's also, how are you listening? Are you effectively communicating with the person? Are you allowing them uh, not just a vent, but are you using your, are you having empathy? You know, do you really truly, are you really truly trying to understand uh, 
what this person is feeling or what they're going through. Because we can all say, uh-huh, really? Okay, right. But unless you truly place yourself in that person's position and think for a moment, how would I react if this was happening to me? Would this be a normal reaction? Then you can empathize with somebody. And that's where the connection with the human connection takes place. Mm -hmm. Joe, anything to add to that? No, I don't think so. See what I mean? You, you just wait. You're going to think about it for a minute. No, I, I mean, specific to what you're saying, I, I, you're absolutely right, Jim. And it's fascinating because as many of these as we have done, whether it was film festivals in person or these virtual screenings or podcasts or whatever it's been, you're the first person that's ever said that. And I would 100% agree with it. And so I, I, I always am, I guess, inspired and encouraged anytime someone has a new perspective. Uh, because we've, I mean, so much of it's the same, same, right? People have the same type of connection to it or um, ideas about it. Uh, but what you just shared was the first time that I've heard that. And and I would agree with you. Uh, I I tend to, um, to your point, be a little more measured because um, one, I'm being very mindful and, and thoughtful of truly trying to grasp like what is happening beneath all of this because I understand all behaviors as a form of communication. And so I'm, I'm trying to, before they try and convince me or sell me something with their words, hmm. I'm, I'm already like assessing and looking beneath all of that um, and trying to get to a much deeper level to at least uh, come up with maybe uh, another avenue to approach them at. Because it's very easy to react based on someone's behavior. I mean, it's simple. That's what they're used to. Uh, that's how people get their way in life. They act a certain way, whether it's tantrum or kindness or however on the spectrum. And so when somebody um, can come in from a different angle, just like you just did right now and say, hey, what I noticed was this right away. I was like, oh, wow. it like makes you pay attention in a different way. It makes you hear it differently. Um, and so anyway, I, I appreciate that what you just did there. And I would agree with you in your assessment. Well, thanks. Thanks for the feedback. Uh, well, maybe you're playing chess where the, the rest of us are playing checkers. Maybe that's it. <laughs> I know, you know, cops tend to, you know, want to be quick problem solvers. You want to jump right in and you want to, you know, we're on a time limit, right? Our supervisors want us to get to a call within a certain time period. And they're giving you a, an idea of what you should be spending on each call. So maybe, maybe that's in the back of the minds of most cops when they go to these kinds of things, but you've guys have taken it to a different level. And I love the fact Ernie brought out that not only are you guys in you in plain clothes where, you know, people might tend to see you in a, in a less of a harsh spotlight than if you were in uniform, but I thought it was awesome to see you guys jump in uniform and go out there and take calls for service and handle runs. And, and I can imagine, I think Ernie, you mentioned it in the film that, all the other cops are like, hey, if we get something with mental illness, you are going to get called. So I'm sure you get a lot of that or you got a lot of that. Yeah, we had a lot of bargaining chips each night that we signed up to work overtime. Uh, I was a former DWI task force officer, so I always traded. I'll take the DWI if somebody wants to handle the accident part of it because uh, I didn't like that part of it. And then me and Joe would, of course, say, you know, we'll, we'll handle the mental health calls, which we didn't even have to say it. Um, it looked like they were feeding us those calls anyway all night long or sending us to another channel uh, to go assist other uh, other sides of the city with mental health calls. <laughs> 
So the, those scenes in the classroom, so the classrooms are full of cops. And believe me, I've been there. Cops are the toughest audience in the world, right? And you can see the arms crossed, the, the fig leaf uh, stance, uh, hands over the mouth. And I see little bits of humor from you guys. How do you engage the strongest skeptics when you go to those kinds of trainings? I think that is a huge differentiator, right? Um, because you're right, Jim, it's, it is a very, very tough audience, especially if you're not willing to be honest. Uh, cops are very good at seeing through you and kind of knowing when that meter is going to go off of like, just stop it. Credibility is a huge deal. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, I, I, and again, not to like toot my own horn, but I think that's something that I'm very good at because of the years of experience is I can show up into a room full of cops that don't know me at all in another state and another agency. And it's like porting a it's like petting a porcupine, right? You've got to be very careful in how you do it. But um, the ability to have that dance of being able to like poke them in their eye and then love on them uh, is, is, is incredibly, uh, it's a skill, right? And not everyone can do it. And even, you know, Jesse, my business partner is like, man, I can never get away with saying something like that the way you do. And people will just laugh at you and they're, they might be super offended, but then they're also like, man, but I agree with you. And so it's just, it's, it's understanding the environment and knowing how to work the room. And again, I think that comes from experience and, and I'm super blessed that, um, that I did work on a large agency, you know, San Antonio has 2,400 officers. And so um, when I first went to the unit, I had just under four years on and I was absolutely terrified. I mean, when they, when they told me I had to go teach in service, you know, 50 to 60 San Antonio police officers, almost all of them with more time than me on, uh, it, it was terrifying for me because you're right. They sit there super closed off, flat affect, just angry, thinking like, who the heck is this guy? And what is he going to teach me? And, and it was rough, but it was also a great way for me to get very comfortable, very quick. And the, but, and I say very quick, like it probably took me two years to become really comfortable. And this was teaching monthly something. And, um, and so it takes time. And, th and then you start to learn and realize that, you know, you have been in that seat with those same opinions, those same judgments, those same things. And so, what is it that you would have liked to have seen from an instructor? And so you just have to balance it with levity, seriousness, um, story. I think in being able to infuse your own story to teach a lesson. Uh, but again, being genuine, like genuinely being honest and not just embellishing and making things up uh, to impress, but like truly just owning your story, your faults, who you are uh, for, for a point. And it, it just, it works every time so far. Ernie, anything? Yeah, no, you know, and I'll give Joe props on that because he is he is masterful at um, getting in front of a group of people and just saying, I'm not going to hide behind who I used to hide behind. I'm going to tell you who I really am. And you'd be amazed at how many people would identify and say, oh, he's like that too? Well, so am I, or I struggle in this area. But he's up here saying it in front of everybody. Does that mean it's okay? And, you know, he helped a lot of a lot of officers that would come up after, you know, we would both teach in service, but after his wellness class and self-care, they would come up and say, you know, after listening to you talk, um, I think I might need some help. 
Do you have somebody I can talk to? And I think Joe at last count last year, right before he left, I think he had 22 officers that he was able to get into services that came up just because we had the, had the opportunity to talk about these, these situations, right? Because we know that uh, police suicide is an epidemic right now and it's only getting worse. So this was a great opportunity uh, to talk about this, talk about self-care and, and get officers plugged into help. Yeah, great. Great work. You both do just a phenomenal job with, with those officers. I've seen it. Uh, I want to get back to you in a second, but I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. PoliceOne.com is the number one resource for your up-to-the-minute law enforcement news, training, and incident analysis. Our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's police one, the number one dot com forward slash registration. And we are back with Ernie Stevens and Joe Smorrow, Crisis Cops on the HBO documentary. Uh, it's great for cops to see this, just like I said, and more importantly, for community people to see it as humans, uh, the toll on you. What's been the feedback from sworn and civilian? What, what are you hearing? Well, you know, I'll talk I'll talk from the perspective of the film festivals, the civilian side of it. You know, when when Jen first told us that she wanted to make this documentary, you know, I was a little confused. I'm like, you know, why would anybody want to watch a documentary about two cops from Texas that handle mental health calls. I mean, what's, what's exciting about that? Uh, but we, I just, we didn't have her vision and we didn't know exactly, you know, how we were going to be portrayed on film. And she really humanized the badge. And when we went on the road to all these different film festivals, we had people coming up to us saying, we had no idea that police officers, you know, had that type of lifestyle that you worked as much as you did, um, that you have these kind of family problems. It's almost like if you wear a uniform, you're almost human, but not quite. You're in a different category, right? And then we also had the responses of, my God, I wish there was an Ernie and Joe here before my son committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And these are total strangers that we did not know 96 minutes prior to the film being screened. And then we would go up on stage after the film was over. And it was as if they acted as if they knew you and made this connection with you. And that's the power of film was of this film, especially was the human connection part of it. And here they are telling you the most intimate details about their lives in tears, um, wanting to see change in their community. So from a civilian perspective, uh, it, it was just totally amazing and totally accepted from everywhere we went. Nice. Yeah, and, and for the officer side of it, same thing, because I, I've been fortunate to be able to use this in our schools when we're doing training around the country. And uh, we, we show it in the classes and we get that feedback. And, you know, whether it's just officers or it's officers and uh, firefighters, paramedics, or um, a few times now we've done it to where we've been hired to go out and help people develop co-responder models. And so the clinicians get to see, um, you know, how it could look for them as well. And so um, the feedback has been super positive. Again, I, I don't know of... I can't think of anything. And again, maybe, you know, it's if they don't have anything nice to say, they don't say anything at all. But 
like no one has come up and like been really upset or offended or um, even like put off by by the film. I mean, I, I don't have that experience. I think the most negative feedback is uh, there's um, a certain type of person, maybe women over 60 who seem to be very concerned with my diet. Um, but other than that, like it's really nothing negative, but old women want me to stop eating Twizzlers and drinking Red Bulls. And to that, I say, you only live once. <laughs> and you've got Ernie who brings us an extra sandwich and, and I don't know, carrot sticks or what have you, but, uh, that's what, that's what a good partner's for too. Different that's strokes, great. Jim. <laughs> okay. Well, um, geez, you know, like I said, I'd love to see the outtakes. I'm wondering, um, there, there have to have been situations where you've, you've been injured in some of these encounters or you've come across uh, a response that you didn't anticipate. Do any stories stand out um, along those lines? I think one of the outcomes, and Joe, Joe touches on it, but doesn't go into great detail about it. Um, you know, an outcome that we did not want to see happen was we were working overtime in, in uniform and we were asked to go assist an, another side of town with an individual that was on a bridge that was um, uh, threatening to jump, you know, commit suicide. And he had just murdered his wife and shot her friend. And in the process, he was shot in the foot and was bleeding. And he was up on a bridge about, I don't know, 50, 60 feet up in the air, leaning over the edge. And it was extremely cold uh, that night. And I remember he was, he was bleeding from the foot pretty bad. There was an ambulance staged at the bottom of the bridge. And, uh, he had access to his phone still. We weren't able to shut that off. And he was getting updates from the news about what had happened. And, and as we were trying to engage and talk to him, um, we had one officer uh, had a harness on thinking, hey, he's been up here about three hours. He's got to be getting stiff. He's losing blood. It's cold. We're going to go ahead and just bring him back on over this side of the bridge. And um, it didn't work out like that. He um, as soon as the officer took one one step towards him and he knew that his wife had already had been had been killed in the shooting, uh, he turned back and he looked and and I was trying to help the officer in the harness. I was holding on to his his rope while Joe was a little bit closer, you know, and he just turned around, and said it's now or never. And then he just launched. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even though there was a, you know, a heinous crime that was committed, you still you still don't want to see somebody take their own life nobody should want to see that. Um, and that one, that one kind of caught us off guard because I don't think we were quite expecting the outcome because we've been very, very successful in all our interactions with people. The negotiators had a little bit more lead on that than we, than we were able to um, converse with the individual. And I remember afterwards, we just sat in a parking lot for about two hours trying to decompress that um, and talk because that neither one of us had experienced that on a call that we were together on. Yeah, devastating. And again, you know, it's one of those things where the, the public doesn't see that. They just hear about this guy, but they, they I'm sure they're not considering the consequences on the responding officers like like the two of you. Yeah, and uh, I guess one that stands out for me, you mentioned injury. So we've never been uh, hurt or injured um, on duty. I guess the only injury I have 
I obtained was to my, um, um, maybe my ego and my uh, uh, morale, uh, but that was internal uh, from incredible leadership. But specifically to, to the call, uh, there was one where a Bear County, um, he was actually on the mental health unit and his son, his adult son, uh, was wanting to uh, do suicide by cop. And it was, it was a classic, um, you know, multi-agency response where it was just SAPD in Bear County, but even that was enough to cross wires. So uh, we were down the street formulating a plan and talking about what we were going to do because it was so close to Bear County. They were like, no, we're going to go deal with this. And so they ended up going into the house and didn't tell us. We heard the call for help. So we like, uh, sprinted up the street and, um, the how the guy was up in the second story. And right when you walk in behind the door to the left was a staircase and they went up the staircase and then it was a long hallway. Well, at the end of the hallway was a door and it was closed. Right. So that's the old classic fatal funnel. And when the, when the deputies were going up there to get him, he had a very elaborate security system in his home and all of the hardware, the, the motherboard was all down in the living room but you could see the wires running up. So he was watching all this. So he started shooting through the door at the deputies. And, uh, and those were his father's coworkers. And one of the deputies ended up shooting to the right uh, into a adjacent door, which was a bathroom. And he jumped into the bathtub, laid down and turned his radio off. Well, everyone else retreated. I was inside and I started to pull the wires to unplug because I knew it was happening. And he started shooting through the floor at me. And so now like the ceiling's coming in on me. There's a sergeant outside who asks Ernie, who not that he doesn't know how to shoot a rifle, but he's not qualified per the department. And he's like, hey, do you know how to use this? And he's like, yeah. So he just hands him his rifle. I mean, it was a disaster. There's like some Barney Five cop stuff happening. Um, and so once we got out, Bear County was like, hey, we have a guy down. Like one of our deputies is down. We can't get him on the radio. He didn't come out. We think he's hit. And so now we're talking about planning an extraction. It was incredibly stressful. Um, luckily, the guy was able to like jump up, jump out, run out as we were about to go back in. And he was just as white as a ghost. And he said, I turned my radio off because I didn't want him to hear it and come get me. And so then the special operators show up, they ended up gassing the, the house and the guy ended up taking his own life, which was terrible. So, um, I mean, but like, again, things like that, where, and I mentioned it in the movie is people assume or think that, you know, we have poor tactics. We put ourselves in positions of disadvantage, but, you know, I just wholeheartedly disagree with that. And while something could have gone wrong at some point, it didn't. And that also matters. Right. And so I think we have to balance out these fear-based thoughts and responses with the reality of, Hey, I've got 15 years of police experience where I didn't die one time. And Ernie has 28 years where he didn't die one time. And so that also has to come into the conversation when we're talking about everything being scary and everybody wanting to kill us, because while it does happen, it's just so rare and we have to be willing to have difficult conversations to adjust the way we show up as first responders mm. and realize that we are oftentimes why things escalate and go poorly because we instigate just by how we simply show up and oftentimes how we look, our uniforms, all the things that play into it. Uh, and I know it's not super popular, but those are 
the opinions of me and me alone. I hear you. I hear you. But I also hear what you said at the beginning. And that is that when you show up to these calls there, it's a box of chocolate, right? You never know what you're going to get inside. And so the fact, you know, thank God you're both still alive. Thank God you've never been killed one time because that's all it takes. And, uh, you know, for, for everything law enforcement, public safety police are going through these days, it's, it's good to see a story like yours out there uh, to give, again, to give the civilians uh, another side of the story because nobody's going forward with the great work of police. So we only hear about, you know, these bad ones, these mistakes or these shootings that weren't really intended to be shootings. And uh, we can use more stories like this. So I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, I wrote some questions down about asking you about other experts like uh, NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, but it's in the, it's in the documentary. So I'll leave that uh, as another enticement for those who haven't seen it yet to, to watch it. And, um, and then also there are some glimpses that you both have uh, Joe looked like you were playing soccer or going to soccer practice at some point. And uh, Ernie, I know you, you, you're big with your family and um, look like you both have some faith-based uh, um, grounding. Uh, and Joe, you're painting. I know you're painting. And I, I would looked all over eBay, couldn't find it. But uh, I know you're painting. Direct to consumer, Jim. All you got to do is ask. I'll send you one. <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds good. What I'm leading up to, what, what is your suggestion? I mean, every public safety job is a high pressure job, but in a situation where you're dealing with child abuse or mental illness or, um, you know, any of these specialized units where you're constantly coming in contact with trauma, what should cops be doing for themselves? Joe, you want to start with that? Yeah, I, I think, um, again, I think even that question, Jim, it's, it's loaded in the sense that we have to, it's like the responsibility becomes on the individual officer, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, I struggle with this because I know left to their own devices, they're not going to make the right choices for themselves. So it's not about what cops should be doing for themselves. It's what are what should police agencies be doing for their cops? And I think that uh, therapy or at least mental health appointments should be mandatory. Um, I, I struggle with the idea that every police department in this country has a, an annual um, recertification qualification for their firearm. When we know that a high 90% of officers will never shoot their gun in their entire career, yet they have to qualify every single year because of liability. But what we also know is that almost 100% of police officers in this country are going to respond to traumatic events, whether it's child abuse, uh, elderly abuse, uh, you know, suicide, homicide, whatever it is, a major motor vehicle fatality. And almost all of those go unprocessed. Why? Because it's not, we don't have a culture of wellness within law enforcement. And there's so much fear around this idea of what it means to be courageous or what it means to be tough. Um, and it's a it's a historically patriarchal profession uh, where it's heavily um, you know male based, and so we've got that whole. It's not just a policing problem. This is a problem in the United States of of you know us men um, and, and how afraid we are to kind of stand in our own truth and say like, yeah, I, I'm having a bad day. I had 
intrusive thoughts today. I'm not hungry. I haven't slept well because I keep having these dreams or I can't hold a relationship because I'm emotionally void and I don't trust because I think people are always going to hurt me and all these things. And so I think the least that police departments could do is make it mandatory that at least one time a year on duty, not in their own time, you let them go for 60 minutes and meet with a a therapist that you have an MOU with and they've been vetted and everything else. Mm. But I think until we do something like that, we're going to continue to see the problems that we see, which is you almost have to get to a very, very dark, deep space uh, before you're willing to either make the ultimate choice where you, you end up ending your life or you say enough is enough and I want to get help. Um, but, but there's very few who will do it on their own before they ever get to that dark space. And so I think that if we mandate it and it starts in the academy, then it just becomes normal after a few years and people will just adjust. But again, that's something that I've been pushing. I talk about it everywhere I go. And I know there are some places doing it, um, which is great, but it's just, it's not nearly wide enough in my opinion. Great. Yeah. And, you know, and, until departments do put together a culture of wellness, like, like what Joe just talked about, you're just, you're going to have to find what works for you. Well, how do you disconnect? Right. I know for me and Joe, we would hang out a lot um, away from work, but it was never, we never talked about work. Uh, we were playing golf or we were making fun of each other. Um, we were always just doing something to have fun, playing ping pong, playing tennis, um, just we, we did not make this job our identity. And I can, I can honestly say that when I retired uh, January 1st, um, I've had so many people ask me, well, do you miss it? Um, and I'm like, no, I, I really don't. I, you know, and they, and they just can't get the concept of, well, I don't understand how you can't miss it. You did it for so long. And once a cop, always a cop. And I'm like, that's just not me. No. It's not, it's not like that. And I know, I, I think Joe would echo the same sentiments here that we did not make this, this job, our identity. We, it came natural to us because of the work and, and the job description we got placed in, um, I think was, was critical for us and for our own self-care, uh, knowing that, you know, we didn't have to, we didn't have the daily grind that patrol work has. And that is so demanding of you. We had the ability to take our time, deal with calls, and then because we were driving back and forth to work together, we had time to decompress with each other and talk about totally other things. And, you know, like you mentioned, you know, I'm very spend a lot of time with family. If I'm not at work, I'm at home, period. Uh, or we're at church and, and Joe, Joe's, you know, same thing with his family and, and soccer and his hobbies and golf. So it was just you have to find what works for you to disconnect away from work, not make this your identity. And then just hope that your department or agency makes a culture of wellness a priority. Yeah, absolutely. We, we have a pretty good system in San Francisco. We had a behavioral science unit and a, a lot of peer support. So a lot of peer support training at least every year. And um, yeah, it's been a great resource. You know, as we're, as we're wrapping up, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was um, a side that we often overlooked in mental illness. And that is like with chronic calls for service to the same houses, to the same individual who's always in crisis. What, 
have we ever taken an approach where we look at their family and friends and the people who make that 911 call to do some prep work in advance um, to make sure they're seeing their therapist or they're on their meds or things like that? Is there outreach or training? I know you do your six month follow ups. Uh, or maybe it's six week follow-ups with, um, I, I know you did with Kendra and others. Uh, what about um, the families of those individuals? Is there anything focused at them? Yeah, and, and well, here in San Antonio, the population that you just described, the high utilizers that call all the time and get hospitalized, we are very fortunate to have the our stakeholders, our hospital treatment facilities, actually put money together and form a unit specifically to respond to those types of in, uh, those types of individuals, those high utilizers, so they put two mental health police officers, two paramedics, five clinicians, and a doctor with office space together. And because it wasn't a grant, the money wasn't earmarked for anything specifically. We identified the top 100 highest utilizers in the city, and then we began to pre-engage them before the call came into 911 to find out why you were walking through the emergency room door so much. And what we found was access to care lack of medications or no medications, um, transportation was an issue, substance use, um, everything from ID recovery they needed so they could have an ID and stay the night at a, at a shelter or something. So it, it was a great the program was called the Program for Intensive Care Coordination. And what the data showed after one year of taking on the top 100 patients was hospitalizations dropped by 50% because now we had wraparound services and continuity of care for patients and the medics could go out mobily and give the injections without even having the patients come into the clinic, which was also a huge barrier for treatment. So uh, they really went outside the box here and, and addressed the issue. And we've seen great results. Yeah, that is, that is great. Joe, anything to follow up on? Well, I, I would just, I guess, add to your question of like, I, I do think that that's an issue that um, there should be more proactive measures in place on the behalf of the community, right? Because, you know, it, it, it's become such a polarizing and, and divisive thing, but there's so many groups wanting to pull law enforcement out from responding to people in the mental health crisis. But until we can train up a community to call somebody else, uh, police officers are going to continue to respond to these situations, right? And so uh, I, I do agree with you that, you know, it would be great if a family member knew that, you know, they had someone in, in, in the family that was struggling or suffering from mental illness or serious mental illness. And they did. I don't know if you're familiar. I'm sure being there, Jim, you are. But Kevin Hines talks about this. He, he's one of the survivors on the Golden Gate Bridge. And he said that they had this like emergency management um, plan in place. And it was a binder of his doctor's info, like uh, the clinicians he worked with. It was just like rapid access to any information that he needed or any of the family needed if he were in crisis. What was not in that first like 10 things was call the police. And, but that's because they had a very uh, proactive family that knew what they were dealing with. And again, it's not that, hey, we just carte blanche don't trust the cops in San Francisco, but why? why are we calling the police when someone's having a, a mental health episode? Like I just, it, it's, I mean, I get it historically. I understand how we got here, but uh, people have to realize that just complaining about the problem is not going to fix the problem and grasping at initiatives that really don't have any teeth aren't going to fix it either. 
we have to be willing to collectively, again, as a community, um, regain the regain the sense of, you know, neighboring and being able to, you know, police our own. And you know, within each home, within each street, within each block, and and not rely on nine one one to handle every societal failing. And, and until we get there, I, you know, we're going to continue to suffer with these problems. Hmm. Yeah, good points. Well, I'd like to wrap it up and ask, um, how can our listeners uh, find you too and what you're doing? Uh, what's your roadshow look like? Uh, what's what's next for you too? Well, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention this on behalf of Jen McShane, the director, that uh, the film is available to any law enforcement agency that wants to watch the film. You just reach out uh, to ernieandjoethefilm.com and send in your request and she'll make that available for free. Um, as far as me, I'm really the only social media I do is on Twitter. It's at eStevens0845. And I'm pretty simple to get a hold of over there. And I respond to all my messages. And if you're ever in San Antonio, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, give, give me a shout and let's continue the conversation. I will bring my golf clubs. <laughs> well, Joe cheats. I'm telling you right now, he doesn't. <laughs> I don't, but uh Jim game on. I'd love to, I'd love to play with you. I'm actually bringing mine with me uh, Sunday when I leave for Iowa. So I've decided I'm going to start bringing them everywhere I go. Um, anyway, uh, I'm on all the social medias. So at Joe Smorrow, there's no W on the end. And uh, it's just common spelling of Joe Smorrow as a Sicilian would do it. And, uh, and then also at solution point plus or solution point plus LLC. And, and again, our, our website is solutionpointplus.com. Um, you know, we, we push out a lot of content. We're actually putting a lot of our courses online right now, um, uh, so that people can access them where they can't afford to bring us out. Uh, they can at least take the, uh, the courses. And again, this is all I'm doing now. We created a, uh, a 16 hour, what we're calling our X factor mental wellness and resiliency. And it's, it's got incredible traction. Uh, we just were meeting with, uh, Homeland security and, uh, ice, uh, earlier today, and they're going to take it on. And so, you know, it, it's to me, my big, hairy, audacious goal is to see one year um, before I die of zero suicides within first responders. Um, and and I, I know it's a huge goal, but I want to be a part of it. And so everywhere I go, every platform I'm on, I tell people, uh, I would rather you quit your job, quit your career, pivot in life than take your life. And so uh, it, it should never be an option. I would be happy to talk to anyone. Uh, reach out to me. And I'm appreciative of this platform, Jim, and just get to speak to your audience and to meet you. Uh, just thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you, Joe and Ernie. And those are noble go goals, Joel. Joe, um, I know we've got, you know, we've had some uh, people from the memorial and from others, Blue Help and other suicide prevention um, people on the show and they've been really great and it is uh it is truly a calling to work with people in crisis and people who need help and you guys uh what a great job you've done thanks for your service in the marines joe and both of you for your work uh, at san antonio pd and for your work in in mental health it's it's not a job that a lot of people would pick <laughs> you guys have done it and you've done it you've done a great job with it and, um, you know, again, uh, we need to see positive sides of police and, and positive sides of 
how training works and how officers respond to training and how they make it better for contacts in the field. And you guys, you guys show that. I truly appreciate uh, the work you've done. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you, Jim. Okay. And to our listeners, uh, have you, have you seen the HBO documentary, Ernie and Joe crisis cops? You owe it to yourself to watch it, take a look at it. And um, let us know, give us some feedback. Uh, let us know if this is happening at your agency or if you could use the training. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave us a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. And if you want to get in touch with me or the staff at Policing Matters, uh, just write us at policingmatters at police1.com. That's police1one.com. Drop us a note, share your ideas, suggestions, feedback. We love reading your messages. Maybe you'll pop up in one of our mailbag episodes. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Take good care. I'm Jim Dudley. Mm-hmm.